to Joe for leading us in that. Third through fifth grade, you are dismissed to your classes. The rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. That's the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we are going to finish our series. So if you've been with us for the whole series, um, just, just for fun, because we, we talk about how much turnover there is. But if you were here when we had the first, when we started this series, would you just raise your hand? Just hold it up real high. I just want to kind of get a look here. Yeah, it's, it's like maybe 50%, but uh, we're glad for the rest of you who joined us partway through. Um, just reminded, I, I can't even remember when it was we started. Somebody tried to remind me. Was it August or something that we started Ecclesiastes? Um, glad that uh, some of you all have been be able to be here for the whole thing. Uh, for all of you, I, I think we have a chance to kind of, if you didn't, if you didn't have that opportunity... Um, today's a great day because we're basically going to summarize the main message. We're going to capture, you get to have it all in one sermon, and I'm still going to keep the same length sermon. I'm not going to be extra long as a result, uh, but you can get the whole benefit today. Uh, so my name's Colby. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to open God's Word and study it, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you as it was to me this week. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Beginning in verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before your word. We, uh, we recognize it as fixed truth, secure, that is intended to move us and shape us. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to receive it that way and to rejoice in the hope that it brings. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, Annie and I went to Argentina, um, to the western part of Argentina, to Patagonia, to spend some time in the mountains during some time off to celebrate our 20th anniversary. And there we went on a hike that started at the top of a ski resort. You can kind of see, you know, just a little hike. Uh, that's Annie there in the middle, in the blue. And we went on a, a hike. It started at the top of a ski resort and went over a rocky summit and out into the wilderness of the Nahuel Huapi National Forest uh, near Bariloche. And, and we wanted to hike from there to this uh, mountain refuge, this small alpine hut out in the middle of nowhere um, called Refugio Frey. Uh, just so you can picture, you don't, you don't buy tickets and there aren't any ropes or signs. 
There aren't people leading you along the way. You just sort of have to find the trail. And so armed with a bad map and a travel blog post about how to find it, we headed to find the Refugio Frey Connector Trail. Now, we found what we understood to be the trail over the top, uh, and, and we started on our way. And as we went along, Annie was not really convinced we were on the right path. I've got to just be honest. She, you know, I, I do have a little bit of a history of getting us into messes. Uh, I also have a history of getting us out of them. Um, but uh, she was not really interested in being led into another mess that day. And so she, she needed some certainty from me that I knew where I was going. But of course, I didn't. I didn't actually know anything about where I was going. And so we had found what we understood to be the trail, and as we went along, and she wasn't really convinced, um, you know, I was really worried that she was going to want us to quit, and we weren't going to get to do this, like, you know, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When are we coming back to Patagonia, after all? Some of you are going to have to look it up just to find it. And so I projected a false confidence that I knew where we were going. Yeah, go ahead. You can laugh at me. So as we're scrambling over the rocks, and the shale, and navigating a portion of the descent, we came to a spot where we were not really sure we could see any of the little red circles. So the only way you really knew if this picture was larger, you would see there's a small red circle at the bottom with Annie coming down over, is you had to find the red circles on the rocks to make sure you were on the right path. And sometimes that was really, really easy. And at other times, it was mind-blowingly difficult. And if you went too far without finding one, you started thinking, I'm going the wrong direction. And, and so, you know, we got to a spot where we hadn't really seen it, seen one in a little while. And I was like, it's certainly down over here. And I just started walking down over and I got probably about 50 yards lower. And I looked up and Annie hadn't moved. She was like, I'm not going any further with you. I don't see a red circle. You need to turn around. And since I had some sunk cost in from, from you know, climbing down over the hill, I wasn't easily moved to think that I needed to come back up. But after a while, I thought, I've got to go back up there and get her. And at this point, she wasn't going to trust my expert intuition. It was a strange and wild place. It was steep and rocky. The wind was blowing. It was beginning to rain a little. And we had two options, retreat to safety or I had to prove that we were headed in the right direction by finding the next marker for the trail. Well, I didn't eventually find the next marker, but thankfully she did. And I am happy to say that I was headed in the wrong direction, and Annie was right. We found a marker that led us through the rest of the rocky top portion of the mountain, and eventually we enjoyed one of the best hikes I've ever been on. And, and you know, that experience came to mind as I was thinking about this passage today in the summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, the guidance of the trail markers were necessary for us to navigate the wilderness and wildness of the terrain. Without, without the guidance of the trail markers, we would have been in a mess. Similarly, as the writer of Ecclesiastes is bringing this message to a close here in the final section, he wants to show us something similar about what we've read and what we've heard here in Ecclesiastes. And, and this is the main idea, that, that fearing God and keeping His commandments guides us through the vanity that we find under the sun. 
that actually for us to find our way through the vanity and the challenges that we find in life under the sun, that fearing God and keeping His commandments is a faithful guide to protect us from what we can't anticipate. God's revealed will, the clarity of His Word, is the trailhead that allows us to navigate the unpredictable terrain of life under the sun. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. In the language of Ecclesiastes, fearing God and keeping His commandments means staying in the boundaries of what God has revealed about what is right, what God has revealed through His instruction, and giving greater weight to his word than our own wisdom. Without a final word, the author, you know, with this final word, the author wants to move us from over-trusting our wisdom and intuition about life to trusting the insight of God's word as far superior and cr- that creating the boundaries in which we live our lives. The guidance through the wilderness of the challenges that we face. So in order to do that in this passage, as he summarizes it, uh, he does three things. You'll look, if you look along with me in verse 9 and 10, he reminds us of the source of this instruction that we've studied. Then in verse 11 and 12, he tells us how to receive this instruction and give it the right significance. And then finally in verses 13 and 14, he gives us a summary of that instruction as a conclusion. And so we're going to look at those three sections together in that way today, and hopefully it will give us some final insight on this book. So so let's look at the first part of that. In verses 9 and 10, first, the author reminds us of the source of the instruction that we've been reading. I want you to notice something. We do see the work uh, of an author gathering the instruction to a close here. You may not have noticed kind of the, the way this book was put together, but we have, we have an author bringing together the wisdom of an aged, wise Solomon. So in this book, Solomon is the, the, the voice that stands behind the person that's labeled the preacher, but right now we're hearing the author give us a summary of what he had taken here. And so together, uh, this message is being framed and given to us in a way that it's arranged for us to come to this final conclusion with the author. But the author wants us to, re- to remind us of the authority of Solomon's wisdom as he does it and the tone and reason that Solomon has done this. So there is the person writing and then there is the person that we've been referring to all the way through as the preacher whose instruction we've been tracking throughout the book. So it seems clear that this later author valued the instruction of this earlier Solomon, the wise, And indicated here biographically all throughout the book is Solomon the king, the son of David. And he gathered these things together to preserve a much needed message for the sake of those who would come after and read it. So what does he tell us about where this message is coming from? What does the author want us to remember about Solomon, the source, and the heart behind it? Well, he says, besides being wise... The preacher taught the people knowledge and in doing so weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care. 
which we, we understand that we have a whole book of Proverbs of which Solomon is the source of their wisdom and the arranger of that. But here we have a carefully arranged grouping of that wisdom for a particular purpose for us to be able to navigate the vanity that is under the sun. And it's not just brought together flippantly. We're not just reading a flippant account from an unserious pundit, but the careful arrangement of the preacher's insights. He's thought long and hard about these things. He's explored a lot of possibilities. He shared those with us along the way. All of the experiences that he pursued to try to find genuine gain and purpose in life. And I think it's important for us to recognize that the aim of this message that we've been reading is delight in truth, not misery in despair. Because as you've been going through this, if you've been with us, you may, may have at times been challenged with being forced to face the reality of the vanity that we find under the sun, the emptiness of many things that we experience, and felt like this is by and large a message of despair. But here he says that the purpose that has been arranged is for our delight, that we may know what is truly good. Now, it's important because it reminds us of what we're going to see next. That truth is not always pleasant, but nonetheless can still be life-giving and protective. Now, before we move on to verse 11 and 12, notice the words that he uses to describe this message. Weighing and studying and arranging. There's a carefulness. It says he sought to find words of delight so that he could write down. He had a desire to teach them. These words of truth. We, as we go through the rest of the passage, he speaks as a shepherd to a flock and a father to a son. This is not bitter defeatism. It's tried and true instruction for the road ahead. Now one application as we think about this section, listen. It reminds us that not all information is created equal, is it? We live in a time with an unusual access to information and teachers. Every day you can find influencers on your favorite platform who are trying to convince you to buy into their lifestyle and instruction, and they pose themselves as wise, but you have little to no access to their carefulness, to their real authority, to their real life, and you may, you may be drawn to think that they present to you something desirable, but how really weighed out over the course of time is what is being presented to you day after day as you scroll, as we take in information from other places. But have you considered the reliability of the sources of wisdom in your life? Can it weather the, the real storms? Every time I see somebody's pithy wisdom, a quick moment, someone selling a new way to think about life, I ask, what happens when everything goes wrong? Can this still stand up? When I, as a pastor, have to walk into that hospital room with someone who's gotten a diagnosis that will clearly end in death, Will the sort of stuff in the messages that populate the first few messages of any year hold up in that room? 
Can it deliver on its promises? Is it weighed and considered and tested and tried? The things that you're building your life on, are they weighed and considered and tested and tried? Or is it easy just to sell it on the internet because it really is just feeding our own hearts what, it, what they really want to believe? We, we have a great danger of just going out and looking for confirmation of what we already believe. But here, the teacher's been arranging carefully truth can, that can bring real life. As we continue in verses 11 and 12, the author wants to help us think about how to receive what we've heard in the book of Ecclesiastes. After kind of reminding us that this source is deep wisdom and that it comes from a fatherly spirit, a shepherding heart, he shows us the significance of this godly instruction. How, do, how we receive it. So the author reminds us in, the, in verses 11 and 12 of the significance of godly instruction. Look in the text. Notice the two images that the author uses here in verse 11 to help us take this instruction seriously. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The first image is the image of a goad. Now that's an old-fashioned word, and most of us don't have a goad sitting around your house. If you've got a goad in your house, please, quick, no takers. A goad, if you don't know it, was a stick with a pointed end that was used to drive livestock. In essence, it was intended to stick you if you're out of line, and to point you in the right direction. But it wasn't a weapon. It was something used to direct livestock for a good purpose. The pain of the goad was about staying on the path and not being led astray. The pain of the goad was not about injury, but guidance. It was about security. He furthers, the, you know, so this is the first image he gives us of what truth is like. So how do, you, how do you tell the difference between truth and your own ideas? Well, truth, when you get out of line with it, it's going to stick you. And this is the picture that he has. It's like, you know, the truth has this way of sticking us and moving us when we're out of alignment with it and waking us up to it. He furthers the image of what truth is really like by describing it as a nail that is firmly fixed. When something is nailed down, it becomes secure. You can't just move it. Instead, you have to deal with it. That is the reality that is being described here as the truth that the preacher has been bringing to us. It is truth that you have to deal with. You don't get to vote whether you like it and just slide it aside. It is like a nail firmly fixed. If you do not pay attention to it, it'll tear you up. You'll run into it. You're going to have to reckon with the kind of truth he has been presenting to us, with the kind of truth that we find in God's word. Truth like this, 
he wants us to recognize, and he understood that this knowledge and instruction was not just the reflections of an aged, wise man, but was the blessing of God. Truth like this comes from one source, he says. One shepherd. And and what he's really showing us is all of the truth that really matters in life, the ones that can really help you in life under the sun, align with the character of God, the purposes of God, and they are fixed and immovable in ways that we must recognize or our lives will be ruined by ignoring it. There aren't many truths based on your perspective and things that you get to decide which ones you want to work out for yourself. Listen, truth isn't just a collection of your own desires, your own preferences. Now, I understand what people mean when they use the term, your truth. This is pretty popular, right? You need to speak your truth. I think in its best form, it's trying to get at the fact that many times we're not honest about what we really think inside. But, the, but there's, there's a danger in taking your truth and making it the truth. Your truth is important. Like where you're at, what you think, you're going to need to be honest with that. But real truth changes our truth. Real truth transforms our truth. Real truth is going to prevail when our truth leads us astray. And it's important for us to know the difference between big truth with a big T and our truth with a little t. And our goal is to come before God's word with an honesty that says, God, here's here's my truth. Here's what I've been living by, what I believe to be true. But ultimately, I've got to reckon with your truth because your truth is what ultimately is immovable you see real truth is immovable in the words of the author it moves us like a goad we don't move it because it's nailed down the author has shared some hard truths with us from this book that can move us i want to review a few of them with with us because i think they can shape the way that we think about our lives under the sun I've got five of them written down that I think are important for us to recognize. The first one, it'll be up on the screen, is that under the sun, everything is vanity. He went through every imaginable category, asking if there is any way to gather up lasting, imperishable gain. And he showed us that in the long run, it is all hevel. That's the Hebrew word we've been using all the way through the series. It's like a mist that is there that fades. That everything that we pursue, even when we get around it and it begins to give us some satisfaction, it begins to perish and fade and it will end. Everything in our life is like that. Even our lives themselves are hevel, he said. That we are here today and gone tomorrow. That we have a fading sense of health and vitality and strength. That our search for contentment and lasting satisfaction in the world and in ourselves will not bring ultimate satisfaction. Under the sun, everything is vanity. The second hard truth that he showed us is that the hevel or the vanity comes from God. 
We've been forced to reckon with the reality, reading Ecclesiastes, that God purposed this vanity under the sun. It is part of His divine purpose and response to our prideful rejection of His boundaries and instruction. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? One of the most interesting phrases in the Bible, after all this time of showing the vanity, the way it's crooked and wound up and twisted up, he says, the question is, if you think you can figure life out and game the system and get real gain in a world of vanity, you're fooling yourself because who can make straight what God has made crooked? God has purposed the times and seasons because it is not okay for us to live independently from Him, pridefully, just ransacking his creation. And so, he's made every pursuit that we have hevel until we find ourselves in him. Until we recognize our deepest need is to be reconciled to God. The hevel comes from God. Third, we are subject to our times and seasons and cannot control our circumstances. We love to think that we are in control of our own destinies, but the truth is we are subject to the times and seasons in which we find ourselves. Without our permission, things can change drastically. And everything we thought we had settled can come loose. You never know what the next season will be like and are not sufficient to anchor yourself when the storm rages. Chapter 3 of this book really brought this home. It showed us all the different seasons that come and go in life and reminded us that we do not choose our own destiny of which seasons we exist in. That they play a massive role in how our lives are defined in the circumstances that we are forced to face and respond to. Number four, our wisdom is easily corrupted by sin and turned toward evil. Solomon's own testimony of his life was that he used his wisdom independent from God's instruction, and it was disastrous. Solomon had great wisdom. In fact, it's an argue, the, way, the way he argues it, chapters 6, 7, and 8 of this book, is that there was no wisdom greater than his. And when he decided to use his wisdom independently from the clarity of God's instruction about how to be a king, it was disastrous. He violated God's instruction by multiplying wives, by making alliances with people that he shouldn't have made. And every time it looked like it was the wise way to protect the kingdom, and it was disaster for his life and for the kingdom. When God had given them the simplicity of instruction, that he was to know and understand and were the boundaries into which he could flourish. His wisdom was not greater than God's. And, and he shows us in chapter 7 that God, man made, God made man upright, but through our schemes and desire to be independently wise, we've done all sorts of terrible things. Human wisdom is shallow and life is full of deep, deep challenges. And when we step outside the boundaries of God's word, our sin produces greater destruction than we are willing to admit. Then there's a fifth truth. 
All of us will face the decline of aging and eventual death. We saw last week that often wisdom and insight and knowledge arrive late in life and we don't get to make good use of them while we have strength. In Ecclesiastes, death is the great equalizer. It comes without prediction. It comes to the rich and to the poor. It comes to the just and to the unjust. And he reminds us as we get here in our passage that we will give an account of our life to God hereafter. These are five really challenging truths that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes that are meant to shape us. Some of Some of us may see them and we want to move them aside, but in his words, they are meant to be goads away from our own foolishness. They're nails that are firmly fixed that we have to reckon with. We're going to understand our lives. Despite what we have often been told in the present about the nature of truth, real truth like this, we don't get to vote on. It is immovable and fixed. Will you hear these things and dismiss them Or recognize that they're firmly fixed. They must be faced if you will understand your life and genuinely know God. It is so important that here the writer pleads with the hearer like a good father to a son. He says, be careful with anything, any ideas that go beyond this or dismiss this. He says, you cannot reckon with life without first recognizing these things. You can study. You can search far and wide. Try to find something that will overcome these things. But the path is through them, not around them, over them, and beyond them. You can endlessly search for wisdom in life. But the things that, are, that really matter, God reveals. God has given us, through his word, the things that our life can reliably be built upon. A rich storehouse and treasure in his instruction that can shape every facet of our lives. And most of it, if we're, not, if we're honest, isn't all that complicated. But yet something in us deeply resists fearing God and keeping His commandments. Like Solomon, we're drawn to believe our own wisdom is greater every time. So so with this backdrop, the third thing he does is he gives us the summary conclusion of the book. Look at your scriptures there at the summary conclusion. He says... In the end, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. After hearing the message of this whole book, if you take this in context, there is profound and deep meaning wrapped up in the way he phrases this summary. I want to try and make it significant to you with three explanatory statements about what it means to fear God and keep his commandments. If we take the book as a whole and we ask the question, what does it mean for you to fear God and keep his commandments? I think here are three ways the book answers this question. Three ways. The first one is this. You are ultimately responsible for the things God has made clear. 
You are ultimately responsible for the things that God has made clear. So many times we feel like we need to figure out God's will in some specific manner. But this book has shown us that we can't predict the future and our wisdom isn't sufficient to guarantee success. God doesn't reveal everything that is coming in the next season of our lives. You may think it is your responsibility to leverage your skills for great good. I mean, if you can do it, go for it. You may think that it is your responsibility to be all that you can be, to get the most out of your talents. Those are certainly strategies and application of wisdom, and, and you may be good at navigating life and doing all of that. Some are better than others, to be honest, but, but in the end, what you will be responsible for is the things that God has made clear in His Word. Some of you could be freed from the tyranny of the demands of being so excellent at life by a simple understanding that we are responsible to the clearest things. Maybe you wonder, like, what, what does God really require? You know, there's so much pressure in our culture, to succeed and outdo other people. To maximize your potential. Anybody tired of maximizing their potential? I mean, I mean listen, it, it's not bad to strive for excellence, right? But it can become oppressive. And for many of us, it can become confusing. What is really required of us? What is my responsibility before God? And there's a beautiful simplicity here. Like, God has made some things clear in his word. We are responsible for those. Those things. Now, they provide the clarity on which we build our lives. Where God's word is clear and specific, you have clear and specific responsibilities to heed its instructions and its commands. And in fact, that may look like a losing strategy at times. But you don't have a responsibility to win at life. That's what this passage is telling us. You have a responsibility to fear God and keep his commandments. You have a responsibility to trust and obey God. First and foremost. So the first thing we see about this is you're ultimately responsible for the things God has made clear. The second thing is, fearing God means giving God the greatest weight in your life. The antonym, or opposite of fearing God here, is disregarding and dismissing God. It is believing that God is trivial, and that it isn't foolish or costly to ignore Him. This is especially important when God's instruction, or His purposes, or His word, comes into conflict with ourselves and others. We often fear what others will think of us. We fear the repercussions of someone's rejection. We fear getting on the wrong side of someone who's important to us and our goals. We fear the cultural ostracization of not being in step with the flow of acceptable ideas. See, everybody's like, what does it mean to fear? We already know what it means to fear. We just often are drawn to fear the wrong people and the wrong things. To give too much weight to the many voices around us and not much weight at all to God's voice. And here what he's wanting us to see is that that is the opposite of what 
is really required of us in life. That we would give great weight to God's voice and His clarity. That we would submit ourselves to it. That we would receive the responsibilities of it. And above all things, we would care most about the pleasure of God. So we know what fear is. We just assign it to others rather than God. We have learned in our culture to ignore God and think it's trivial. But to ignore the truth and wisdom of our creator and designer is to do so to our ruin. Not because he delights in our ruin, but because there is real truth and real consequences to what we affirm, to what we act on, to what we celebrate in life. Fearing God means giving God the greatest weight in your life. Third, fearing God means keeping his commandments is true wisdom. It means keeping his commandments above our wisdom. Because our wisdom and perspective is under the sun, it is always best to trust the instruction of, uh, that God gives from over the sun. At best, our wisdom is limited and it cannot anticipate all the challenges of the future and difficulties in life. Even worse, our wisdom is corrupted by our own disordered longings and sinful motivations that remain hidden to the world but obvious to ourselves. And ever present. Especially when we consider our most honest moments. And as verse 14 closes, with every moment, we realize that every moment will be brought to light. And we will see the glory of God's instruction over all earthly wisdom in the end. There are many things we can do in our lives, many plans we can undertake and pursue, but all of them must be done inside the boundaries of God's word and instruction. Because in the end, his word alone endures forever in a world where everything fades. He alone knows the way through the high peaks and the dark rock valleys of your life. His instruction blazes a trail for us when the pathway is unknown so that we can find refuge in His plan. Which is the promise I want to end on. The challenging truths of Ecclesiastes have one aim. From one shepherd. To move you and I from a life of sinful independence apart from God to humble dependence on the promise of God. It's a promise made in chapter 3 that in all of the heaven and all of the vanity, God has a great and beautiful purpose to reconcile you to himself so that you can have true life. The promise was that God is the one who makes things beautiful. And where you are unable, he is able to secure the future for your good. Jesus Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life that brings us back into a right relationship with the Father and secures our future. The truth is none of us have truly feared God and we have continually broken his commandments. On top of the hevel of life under the sun, we've added the misery of our own sin and wisdom. When we stand before God and every deed is brought into judgment, we will not be found guiltless and our lives will not be seen as a tragedy of injustice. We have all sinned. And we've traded the glory of being God's image bearers to make a name for ourselves that will ultimately vanish. But the good news is that God offers you 
hope today. Hope from beyond the sun. Hope beyond the vanity that we navigate under the sun. As a gift of his grace and mercy, through the death of Jesus Christ, your sins have been paid for, and you can receive the promise of eternal life and hope through faith in Jesus Christ. And await the day when God brings to fullness the promise that we saw in Ecclesiastes 3. The promise that he makes all things beautiful in his time. You see, there's a day coming where after navigating the difficult challenges of the vanity under the sun, when we've seen our last strength, when we're buried and dust has returned to dust, that we'll await one promise from one shepherd that he alone makes all things new. And the hope of the gospel that can both save you today and guide you through the ups and downs of life is that even when we're dead and buried, one call from our shepherd who keeps his promises will make us alive and ready for everything that he has prepared. A day when the heaven will be gone, when he'll wipe the tears from our eyes, where our weakness and sin will be forgotten and his glorious promise will be all that we know. And the Bible says today is a day of consequence for you. A day when you have to decide what you're going to trust. Who you're going to hope in. And if you've never turned from your sin to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of invitation for you. The day to leave off pursuing vanity. To turn from that to repent. And trust the sure promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They will not only save and rescue you, they will guide you through every moment until that final day comes when we enjoy the beautiful thing that God has promised. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we reflect on these words as the band prepares to come and lead us in a final song. With our heads bowed in a moment of reflection, with no one looking around, I want you to take a moment to think about what you've heard, to respond to the Lord. What did you need to hear today from Him? And if you're here today and you have heard all these things and you know that you've been pursuing a life trying to find satisfaction under the sun and the vanity of the world. And that you've never turned from your sin and asked for God's free forgiveness offered through Jesus Christ. I, wanna, I just want to appeal to you today that could day, today could be the start of something new for you. Something meaningful and lasting. Something eternal a return 
to a relationship with your Creator. And I wonder if you would have the courage today, sitting there where you're at with heads bowed and eyes closed, just to acknowledge to me for a moment that you need to take that step, that first step to return to Him. You sense that God has given you an opportunity to decide what the rest of your life is going to be about. And just right now, nobody's looking around in the quietness of this moment. If you would say, that's me, I need to make a decision today to follow Christ. I just want to ask you to slip up your hand where you're at. I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle. I want to be able to pray for you. You would say, I I need a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and today is the day that I need to turn to him. Right where you're at, just lift up your hand. Just acknowledge it to the Lord. Thank you. If that's you, you might just say, Lord, just pray to Him. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've pursued a lot of things other than you. And today I want to turn in faith to you and put my hope in what's offered through Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Thank you for paying for them at the cross. And give me life, eternal life, that I can begin living now and await for the full hope of your promise. God, I pray for each person here today, Lord, that as they've gathered here, that you would allow this to just be a moment where they remember what is firm, what is true. And God, that we would learn to fear you and keep your commandments and live in the freedom of that. Lord, that you would spread us throughout this community in a way that would honor and reflect your image. We pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we're gonna have a chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember that our hope has been purchased through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his broken body and shed blood. And if you share in that testimony of faith in his promise, we invite you to join us in taking the bread and the cup and celebrating uh, with us as we do. But if you're here today and you've not yet made that decision, we, we would encourage you just to let the bread and the cup pass. And I just wanna appeal to you, like, we, we want to we wanna be a part of your spiritual journey and story. We want to help you think about the most important questions in your life. And we'd love a chance to talk to you. If you ever need help just wrestling out the truths of God's word and where you're at in relationship with God, we want to be a part of that. And uh, so let's take this moment as we sing to reflect on the things that we've heard.